Father God, we thank you for another day. We thank you for the beautiful, white, pure snow out there, Lord, and uh, we're just thankful that we could be here together. Thank you for this church and the way it's impacted so many over the years. Lord, as we reflect on what you've done over this last year and and, uh, just in our lives and in this community, in this church, Father, we look forward to this new year. Father, today as we are gathered together to worship you, and Phil uh, is prepared to share a message with us, Lord. Our hearts, Lord, may they be open, our minds, as we um, we open your word and, and truth is spoken. Lord, we just pray that you would move. And as we look forward to this, this upcoming year, we give it to you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Matt. I've spent a lot of time these past few weeks thinking about what I wanted to preach today. Typically this week... Folks will be thinking about New Year's resolutions. They want to lose a few pounds or they want to save a few dollars. Any number of different things get placed on lists like that. And I thought we could talk about all the different resolutions that need to be made. Then I realized that really what we need more than anything is a spiritual resolution. So I've thought about it. I've prayed about it. I've searched my Bible to see exactly what I wanted to preach this morning and what God would want preached this morning. And eventually I found my way to Matthew chapter 5. I hope you'll go there with me. I'm going to share a passage of scripture with you. It comes directly from Jesus himself that most of us would like to have removed from the Bible. We really would. But it bears investigating, it bears studying, and it bears application. This is Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, and tooth for tooth. Now that passage right there, that verse, everybody can get on board with it. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If somebody does something to me, I'm going to do something back to them. If they hit me, I'm going to kick them. If they kick me, I'm going to shoot them. That's the mentality that we tend to have. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If you do something to offend me, you can plan on it coming back your direction. That's easy for us to embrace That's Old Testament teaching that most of us wish was a part of the New Testament teaching. Tina and I were watching a show on Netflix just last night, our entire family was actually, called Last Man Standing. Tim Allen is the star of that show. In that particular episode, he and one of his daughters were having this very discussion. They were talking about forgiveness versus revenge. And Tim was not necessarily quoting this verse, but coming awful close to it. And he said, that's the God that I serve. And his young daughter Eve said, not me. She was instructing her dad about forgiveness. It was really quite an interesting episode in light of what I knew we were going to be looking at this morning. Like I say, this verse is easy. We would love to have this as a part of modern day Christianity. Jesus filled, Jesus taught, spirit led Christianity. But I want you to see what Jesus says right after this. Verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. It's that part that we want taken out of the Bible. It's that part that we wish wasn't here. If somebody asks me for my coat, I'm supposed to give them my cloak too. If somebody says to me, let's go one mile, then I'm supposed to willingly go the second mile. I don't like this. What if they've done something to offend me? 
What if they've done something to upset me? What if I just don't like them? What if they live next door and they come to me and they want to borrow my lawnmower and I know they're not going to bring it back? What am I supposed to do? I don't like those people. What if they're in a position of authority over me and they lord that position over me all the time? What if they abuse that position? What if they try to oppress through their authority? What am I supposed to do? Well, Jesus just laid it out for us, and we need to pay attention to it. It leads us to what I would refer to as second-mile living. Second-mile living is taught by Jesus himself for a reason. It is hard for us to understand, but it is a heart-transforming concept that comes right out of the New Testament. We need to pay attention. I'm going to take you through the Gospels this morning. We're going to bounce around through them just a little bit. And I'm going to show you ways that Jesus would drive this point home. We'll bounce back into the Old Testament just once. But for the most part, we will stay here in the Gospels because this matters to Jesus. Let's start by understanding what he's talking about. During the days that Jesus would have shared these words, the Holy Lands were under Roman control. The Romans had possession of all of the land that surrounded them, even though they gave the Jews a certain amount of say in the governing of their land, the Romans could still trump whatever they came up with. They had soldiers that enforced their laws all over the Roman-controlled lands. You have to understand that the Romans themselves believed that they were just a rung or two above everybody else, particularly the Jews, and the Samaritans were way down here. And Roman soldiers would take it up another notch or two above just the average Roman citizen. They believed that they could do whatever they wanted. They believed that they could get away with anything. And for the most part, they could. When they were in the Holy Lands, they could do whatever they wanted. In this particular situation, there was a Roman law that allowed the soldiers to conscript anyone they wanted into service for them as long as they were not a Roman citizen. So if you were an Israelite, a Hebrew, living in Israel, and the Roman soldiers came up to you, they could actually tell you that you had to carry all of their armor or their packs or all of their gear for at least one mile. And you had to, by law, do that very thing. If it was a farmer out in a field that was approached by a Roman soldier, and that soldier wanted him to carry his gear for a mile... The farmer had no choice but to lay down his sickle and pick up the sword of the soldier. If it was a seamstress working in a shop and the Roman soldier walked in there and said, I want you to carry all of my gear for me, she was going to leave her shop and grab the shield and the pack and everything else and walk with him at least one mile. If it was a student in a classroom and the Roman soldier wanted to call him into duty, the student could do nothing about it. He had to go at least a mile. No one was exempt from this. If a doctor was taking care of a sick person and a Roman soldier approached them and said that I want you to do this, then they would have to leave their bag of medical supplies behind and pick up the pack of the soldier and go at least a mile. A politician, a Jewish politician, if he was approached by a Roman soldier and told that he had to do this, then he would have to get off of the platform, whatever platform he was on, put on his walking sandals and hike at least a mile carrying whatever it is the Roman soldier gave him it was a teacher or a carpenter, didn't matter. They were going to do what the soldier told them to do. It was law. It was Roman law. Unions could not change it. The courts could not overturn it. 
It was Roman law. Can you imagine how excited Jewish people were to see the Roman soldiers coming towards them? If it was a lone garrison that was making its way into their village, can you imagine the conversations that were had? Oh, no. Here they come. We're going to have to pick up their shield and their sword and their packs and all of their armor, and we're going to have to go on this mile-long walk and then turn around and come back. If it was just one lone soldier walking into the village, they would think the same thing. Somebody's going to get stuck with this guy. And there was nothing they could do about it. Nothing. They were oppressed by the authority. And so Jesus speaks right to it. Rather than saying, if the Roman soldiers come to you, you rebel against them. He said, if they ask for your coat, you give them your cloak. If they ask you to go one mile, then you willingly go two Second mile living. Jesus was changing the entire perspective. He was changing the way people saw those in positions of authority, but he was doing it for a reason. And he wouldn't stop right here. Jesus would continue to teach throughout the New Testament this same concept, driving it home. You got to go the second mile because the second mile matters. You get into the second mile with whoever it is that asks you to go there. They're only going to ask for one, but you go too, because that's where people's lives are changed. That's where their hearts are opened. That's the pattern that Jesus would set. He was a second mile savior, and he wants us to follow his lead. Let me show you, still in the gospel of Matthew, some of the other teachings that he would have about this. Matthew chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Now let's stop there for just a second. They had a few glimpses of what Jesus was facing. They knew that he would be giving up his life. And then they knew that he would be going to a throne in heaven. Their mother, now you heard the whole story, this is James and John's mother, came to Jesus and asked, like so many mothers would, that Jesus give them a special place of honor. Let one sit on the right, let one sit on the left when you come into your kingdom. That's a mother's request. Bold one, but that's a mother's request. This is James and John, the sons of thunder. They were, they were unique individuals, they really were. And Jesus asked this question. Did you catch it? Can you drink the same cup that I'm going to drink? Listen to their answer. We can, they said. Here's the problem. They couldn't. It was impossible. They may be able to sacrifice their lives. They may die on a Roman cross. They may be able to be murdered on behalf of other people. But here's where that stops. They could not, they could not atone for anyone's sins. That was impossible. Only Jesus could do that. He was the only one that could pay that price. They still didn't understand. Their mother certainly didn't understand when she asked this question. Give them a place of special honor right next to you. But look at what happens in the hearts of the disciples, the others. This is verse 23. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now, verse 24. When the ten heard about this, 
They were indignant with the two brothers. That's the flesh speaking. They were mad. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's second mile living. Jesus said, I didn't even come to be served. I came here to serve. You're messing it all up. You're wanting a position of authority. You're wanting to be able to lord that position over other people. And that's not what this is about. Jesus wanted them to understand that this is all about serving other people. This is all about sacrifice. This is all about giving yourself up for the sake of other people. Pay attention to what I've done. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not the only one that would teach that in New Testament Christianity. Go with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 3. John the Baptist was sent as a precursor to the Messiah. He was sent to prepare the way for a Savior, to let everybody know that Jesus was coming. He was a unique preacher with a unique mission and a unique message. He took it very seriously, and he was extremely good at the preaching that he was doing. So good that he was actually baptizing people with a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism for the forgiveness of their sins and repentance, but it did not involve the Holy Spirit. He was gathering around him a group of disciples, a group of followers, As any teacher would during those days, they would go everywhere that John was going and they would back up the message that he was preaching. They would be taught by him. Well, after the baptism of Jesus, Jesus began to gain disciples as well. John baptized him, but now Jesus was performing miracles and people were saying, I want to be a part of this ministry. I know what John's been doing, but look at what Jesus is doing. And they would leave John And they would go to follow Jesus. And Jesus' numbers began to swell well past John's. And his disciples got upset about it. They said, John, look at this. He's getting more disciples than you. Listen to what John says. This is verse 30. He must become greater. I must become less. You see, that's the mindset of second mile living. Jesus must become greater. I must become less. This isn't about me. This is about him. And this is about how he impacts other people. Second mile living gives us that opportunity. Second mile living, when we choose to obey the words of God, takes us to places that we could not go without it because you can't arrive there in the first mile. And you certainly can't arrive there before you ever take a step with other people. Because you see, part of the reason that Jesus would teach second mile living is it leads to connectedness. That's part of the purpose behind it. That's part of the reason behind it. It leads to connectedness. Now, here's a working definition of that. Connectedness is a heart-to-heart attachment between two people that takes them beyond simply knowing about or knowing one another to knowing about one another. It's in connectedness that we build relationship. I get to know about you. You get to know about me. That happens in the second mile. Now think about it in the application that Jesus would give. If somebody's come to you and they've asked you to do something that you view as unfair, but you go ahead and do it, and you do it begrudgingly, you're going to just do the minimum amount that you can, and then you're going to leave with bitterness in your heart. But if you choose to stay and go the second mile, the bitterness disappears and the relationship begins to kick in. 
It's in the second mile that you get the privilege of seeing other people for who they are and understanding things about them. What makes them tick? What makes them think? What is their view of God? How do they see Jesus? What is it that's important to them? What drives them? You discover all of that in the second mile. The first mile is nothing but obligation. The second mile is the freedom to impact other people. The second mile is a place of ministry. It's a place of connectedness that makes a difference in people's lives. Second mile living leads to all kinds of different things. It really does. First and foremost, it leads to us embracing what psychologists have referred to as one of the most important emotions, but often overlooked emotions in all of our society. That is the emotion of empathy. Connectedness happens through empathy. This is the definition of empathy. It is the ability to feel what other people feel. When we become empathetic towards another person, when we care about them so much that we develop that type of connectedness, we actually feel what they feel. If you were here last week, you heard me say that Jesus feels deeply what you feel. He experiences deeply what you experience. Well, empathy is this gift from him that allows us to connect with other people in such a way that we can actually feel what they feel. If you're wondering about how close you are to certain people, ask yourself this question. Do you feel what they feel? Do they feel what you feel? Are you happy when they're happy? Are you sad when they're sad? If they're having kind of a down day, can you experience that with them? If they're joy-filled, are you joy-filled? Now, that doesn't mean that you have to mirror their emotions. It just means that you understand it. And if they're really struggling, then you're struggling right along with them. Empathy allows that to happen. Connectedness allows that to happen. And I would offer to you, my friends, that you will never, ever, not ever get there in the first mile. And you will never get there before you at least walk that mile and then take the steps into the second one. Second mile living connects you with other people so that you can go deep into the relationship with them. It's hard sometimes. It's hard, but it's worth it. Partly because it will lead to evangelism. When you start to walk the second mile with non-Christians, you can connect with them. I'm really excited to find out if a fella attended our Christmas dinner or came to the Christmas dinner. I don't even know his name, so I'm going to have to find out through some other sources if he was here. But here's why I'm so excited about it. He has been into two businesses in town and connected with some of the ladies that work there. They've invited him to come to church a number of different times because they have connectedness. They've developed empathy for this man. He has given them the same generic responses that so many people do. If I come to church, the roof will fall in. If I come to church, lightning will strike me and all the people around me. Normal cliche answers. Oh, I can't come to church. I don't have any money. On and on and on. All these lists go. And both of these ladies have been tenacious in saying to him, you come to church anyway. And he's always rejected until just a few weeks ago, he started to ask one of them about the Christmas dinner because he had nowhere else to be. And he said, hey, does your church still serve that Christmas dinner? And she said, yes, it does. Well, maybe I'll go there. And she's encouraged him over and over and over again. I can't wait to find out if he was here because they walked the second mile with him. Even in the face of him rejecting every offer that they ever made, they walked the second mile. They didn't just get to the end of the first one and say, okay, I invited, now I'm done. They went on into the second mile and they stayed with him. Connectedness causes that 
and it leads to evangelism. If you have ever found yourself in a situation where you have thought, I I just don't know. I I don't know if I'm any good at evangelism because nobody's ever responded. Then ask yourself this question. Have you ever walked the second mile or are you trying first mile evangelism? For years in the church, we were taught that the only effective evangelism was to stand on the street corner on a soapbox and scream at the top of our lungs some message out of the Bible and people would gather around you and they would become believers. I can honestly tell you, I have never heard anybody tell me that they became a Christian from that type of evangelism. But I have heard, now it's not to say they haven't. I've just never heard it. I've heard a lot of people tell me that they have become Christians because somebody walked the extra mile with them. Somebody got connected to them and went the second mile. Evangelism works that way, and it was patterned by Christ. Take a look at this in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 31. Jesus would teach second mile living the same way our parents would teach it to us. This is pretty simple, but straightforward. Do to others as you would have them do to you. That great teaching. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you want other people to like you, then you like them. If you want other people to treat you well, then you treat them well. If you don't want other people to abuse you, don't be abusive. That's just simple preschool teaching, and it even comes right out of the Bible that way. That's biblical preschool teaching. Treat others the way you want them to treat you, but listen to this. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. See, don't you find yourself again saying, gosh, I wish that didn't exist in the Bible. I've got to do this because that's what Jesus did. And he was kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, and therefore I'm supposed to be kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Why? Because it leads to evangelism. Because when people see a second mile life, they get curious about it. When people experience somebody in the second mile, they start to ask questions What makes you different? Why are you the way you are? Why do you react the way you react? Why do you deal with people the way you deal with people? Why do you live in the second mile? They may never verbalize it that way, but that's what they're asking. And the simple answer is because that's what Jesus did. He lived in the second mile and he told me to live there as well. So I will. Second mile living is a New Testament commandment. We need to pay attention to it. Hard as it might be, it is a New Testament commandment. And we do it not just because it's a preschool teaching that we hear from our parents. We do it not just because it's a biblical preschool teaching. We do it not just because it leads to evangelism. Here's the good news. You live in the second mile because it leads to blessings from God that you cannot find in any other way. Second mile living leads to blessings from God that you cannot find any other way. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We'll pick up in verse 38. Or verse 37, I'm sorry. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, 
and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Given, it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, that deals with forgiveness, the greatest blessing that we're going to receive outside of grace from God himself. But it deals with many of the other blessings from the Lord as well. Blessings that we need to pay attention to. The terminology comes out of the baking world. Now, follow what Jesus is teaching. If you're going to bake a pie, you take your one cup measuring cup, stick it down into the flour, pull it out, dump it into the pan. That's the way a lot of people would do that. I've just got one cup of flour. Well, when we start looking at the pie of God's blessings, here's what he says. If we start applying second mile living, when God goes to measure out the blessings that are going to come into your life, starting with forgiveness and moving on from there, he's going to scoop the flour out and then he's going to shake it down. He's going to get all the air out of it. And then he's going to press it down. And then he's going to put more flour on top of it. And it is going to run over. That's going to be poured out in your life. Not just one little scoop of it, but a good-sized scoop that's been shaken down, pressed down, and it is overflowing. You find that in second-mile living. Overflowing goodness from God. Overflowing blessings from God. They've been shaken down and they have been pressed together and more has been added to it and it's been given to you because you moved into the second mile. That's a, that's a good blessing. It really is. We have an interesting tradition at our house. It doesn't always happen as often as we would like, but as often as it can, it does. We call it Sunday night cinnamon. Told you a little about it before. This is the way it works. Sunday nights, Tina and Katie go into our kitchen and they make something with cinnamon in it. That's it. Now, that could be cinnamon rolls. That could be this wonderful cinnamon bread. It could be a cobbler. It could be a crisp. It could be a pie. Just something that has cinnamon in it because cinnamon is the Allspaw family favorite spice. Really is. So Sunday night cinnamon works out well for us. But here's what we've started doing. When Tina and Katie are in there, we ask them to add a little extra love. So when they start measuring out cinnamon, if it says one pound of it, they put two in, whatever it takes. And we don't stop there. We take it on into the realm of frosting because frosting is a love language in the Allspaw home. And by the way, all cinnamon rolls should be frosted. So when they start making frosting, if she has a recipe for a single serving of frosting to go over the top of the cinnamon rolls, we ask her to triple it. The boys and I are sitting there saying, do it again, do it again. And there's triple layers of frosting on the cinnamon rolls dripping down off the sides with the extra cinnamon oozing out the side of it. Folks, if you want extra cinnamon, extra frosting blessings from God, you do this. Otherwise, you're going to eat dry, nasty, unfrosted cinnamon rolls from the Lord. (laughs) If you want the good stuff, you get into the second mile because it opens up blessings for you that you couldn't find other places. A good measure pressed down shaken together and overflowing into our lives. Now, isn't that good news? So the second mile becomes this very visible demonstration of how much we love the Lord. You might ask, how how does it work? What's it really look like? Well, here's just a simple illustration. Let me give it to you as nothing more than that, just a simple illustration. We all find ourselves at restaurants from time to time where there are people that are waiting on us. They work for minimum wage plus tips. That's their salary. If a Christian goes into that restaurant and they know that you're a Christian, when you tip well, you're in the extra mile. When Tina and I go to conferences, and we go 
once or twice a year to these different places all around the country. Oftentimes they're in in spots like St. Louis or Chicago or Seattle or Dallas-Fort Worth or Columbus, Ohio, big cities, large cities. Their convention centers oftentimes sit in the middle of their downtown areas. So you'll go into the conference, they'll do their teaching, and then they turn everybody loose on the local area to go find something to eat, whether that's for breakfast, lunch, supper, doesn't matter. They turn you loose to go out and get something to eat and come back. Almost every one of those conventions will have at some point somebody standing up and saying this, when you go out to all the restaurants surrounding this convention center, you tip well. They stand up in front of everybody and they say, you tip well because they know who's here. There are Christians here. When you go out there, you leave a good impression. You let them know in the extra mile that you care about them. I don't know this to be true, but I would guess that most business conventions don't have that type of teaching in it. Most medical conventions don't have that type of teaching in it. But Christian conventions do because it matters. That's the extra mile. And you might think to yourself, well, they're getting paid anyway, and if I tip just a little bit, look at all these other tables around here, they're going to make quite a bit of money. Do you realize, this isn't true of everybody, but do you realize that most people that are in that particular job field are not there because it's a career choice? They're waiting on tables because they're trying to take care of their families. Sometimes it's a second job and they're just trying to make ends meet. Or it's college students that are just trying to get by. Most people have not just said, gosh, I want to go and wait on tables and that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to take care of other people. They're in that service-oriented business because they have to be. We have found throughout the city of Libby and the community that we live in that there are a lot of single moms that are serving tables. They're just trying to take care of their kids. There are other people that are just trying to make it. They're trying to pay their bills. So for us to leave an extra tip with the whole thought of it being fueled by the Holy Spirit and seeing whatever God's going to do with it in the extra mile, that's an easy thing for us to do. Extra mile living tips well. Extra mile living cares about other people and sees what's happening in their life and tries to reach out to them. Let's just take the idea of tipping. Do you know what most people in the customer service realm would say when Christians come after church about their tips? Oh no, this is the worst group of people that are going to come. Turn that upside down. When you go out to dinner, you become the good tipper so that people are anticipating God's church getting there. Make a difference in their life. That is not something that I have always understood or embraced. It has been a process for me to learn it, and I have learned it in the realm of second-mile living because that's where I want to be, don't you? That's where we should all be because look at what it leads to. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing in our lives. Go with me to the book of Proverbs as we wrap this up. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 20. Whoever gives heed to instruction prospers, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. You know what the word blessed means? It means happy. There are some translations of the Bible that would read just like this. Whoever gives heed to instruction prospers, and happy is he who trusts in the Lord. You may think to yourself, second mile living is oppressive living. Second mile living is not some place that I want to be. Well, the Bible would teach, pay attention to those instructions. Pay attention to that teaching and you'll find yourself living a happy life with the Lord. Happy is he who heeds those instructions. Boy, it doesn't get any more simple than that. Just pay attention to what the Bible teaches. Live it. 
Go the second mile. Oh, sure, walk the first mile with them. But at the end of that, you take the steps into the second one and go to where you need to be. Now, it'd be easy for you to say, I want to do this. I really want this next year to be a second mile year, which, by the way, is my prayer for the church. I'm praying that our church as a whole will have a second mile year. But I know this. That will only happen when the individuals that make up the church start living second mile lives and we bring everybody together. So you might think to yourself, well, I want to do it. I'm just not sure how to pull this off because in some ways my flesh is wrestling with my spirit. I have oppressive people in my life. I have people that I just don't like, that I don't want to be around, and I'm not sure that I want to do this, but I'll heed the instructions of God and I'll go the second mile. How do I do it? Well, let me give you four questions. I'm glad you asked. Four questions that you can ask yourself. Number one, what opportunities do I have at home to go the second mile? Just at home. It can start right there. What opportunities do I have at home to go the second mile? Number two, what opportunities do I have at work to go the second mile? That one's a little harder. Number three, what opportunities do I have at church to go the second mile? And number four, what opportunities do I have in my community to go the second mile? Ask yourself those four questions. Come up with answers and then live those answers. Just move into the second mile. That's all you have to do. Just move into the second mile. You may never walk the first mile if it depends on you. But somebody else comes to you and they ask you for something. Then you get into the first mile. At the end of it, you go the second Get into the second mile at home, at work, at church, in our entire community. Get into the second mile so that our church can have a second mile year. It matters and it leads to blessings. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Simple little prayer that anybody can pray that will lead you into the second mile. Here we go. Father in heaven, I've heard what you've taught. I'm listening. And now I want to do it. So I'm available. Lord, would you take me into the second mile by opening my eyes to see the opportunities. And when those chances are in front of me, Lord, nudge me into those first steps. And then walk right beside me and let me feel your presence. Lord, take me not just into the realm of service, but into the second mile of it, that you might be glorified, that others might see you, and they might know you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.